You're listening to McBee Care Threads, a podcast where leaders across the healthcare industry can learn from each other. We'll discuss stories and explore strategies to help providers deliver value-based care and hear your peers share their best practices for success. Let's get into the show. Hello and welcome everyone to the McBee Care Threads podcast. My name is Maria Warren and I'm a senior director here at McBee. Our guest today is Rose Madden-Bear, who is the Senior Vice President of Population Health and Clinical Support Services at the Visiting Nurse Service of New York. Today's episode, we will be discussing population health and risk-based models. So let's get started. Rose, it's an honor to have you as a guest on today's podcast. Why don't you take a minute to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background? Thank you, Maria. So I am, as Maria indicated, I am Senior Vice President of Population Health and Clinical Support Services of the Visiting Nurse Service of New York. And what that entails is I am responsible for, on the provider side, the value-based care model delivery that the various arrangements that we have with health plans and risk-bearing entities. In addition, education and professional development reports to me. And as recent as a month ago, the home-based primary care practice also reports to me, which is Esprit Medical Care. I am a nurse by background, an advanced practice nurse. I've been an advanced practice nurse for several decades. I started in nursing in intensive care and then ultimately transitioned to home care and hospice or what I call community-based care. I also have experience in managed care. I uh, was involved in the inception of managed long-term care and in uh, some of the earlier Medicare Advantage demonstrations as well. Uh, And I was responsible for quality across an entire uh, health system in my prior experience. I was a full-time visiting nurse at one time and primarily took on a lot of what they called the really clinically complex populations. So I was doing chemotherapy in the home, pain management, hydration, TPN. My first master's, my MSN is in oncology as a clinical specialist. I'm also boarded in advanced community health, and it was a natural uh, transition to do both home and hospice care because of that oncology background. So did everything from, you know, the high tech treatments all the way to end of life. I also went back to school for my master's in health administration. And then about five years ago, I went back to school and uh, I've always been very, very interested in the integration of medical and behavioral and in caring for populations and how they coexist. It dates back to even my MSN days when I was uh, taking care of oncology patients and looking at things like um, body image with ostomy patients, depression and anxiety, and all of that. So I came full circle. I uh, received a DNP from Duke University in evidence-based practice, and it was primarily in the area of the integration of medical and behavioral health into taking care of populations. Tell us about how you got started in population health and the journey you've been on building the program at VNSNY. 
uh, how I got into population health. I started in population health before anybody knew what it was. In fact, I used to get from my colleagues, can you kind of sort of try to explain what that is? And it really was a desire to sort of look at populations, not just through a traditional, what I call biomedical model, but really look at populations through a very different lens, a psychological lens, a sociological lens, health disparities, health equity, social justice, and of course, the medical model as well. When we first, dating back the beginnings of what we did in population health was after Superstorm Sandy, we had, there was a small group of us that were doing community health assessments, vulnerable communities after the storm that were disenfranchised. We worked with a number of volunteer groups that were uh, first responder groups and uh, sort of uh, one group was Heart 9-11 and they were very much like sort of a Rubicon where they went into communities, they would build back communities um, through uh, doing but rebuilding homes. But they were seeing disenfranchised populations. They were seeing high rates of domestic violence, alcoholism, mental health issues, PTSD, and closed pharmacies, closed primary care practices, and all of that. And they asked for our help to go into these communities, do community health assessments, render mental health first aid and counseling, help these communities reconnect with their primary care, and, uh, you know, help with social determinants of health, like refilling their medications. And for that work, we actually, uh, American Red Cross, you know, was out there in the communities, and we're seeing what we were doing. And work that we were doing and had offered us a grant to work with these, to rebuild these communities for approximately another year and a half. And they granted us. And that was the beginnings of us really starting to really look at population health and what it was, what it's like to look at communities way beyond, you know, um, medical, uh, you know, medical diseases and chronic and clinical conditions, but to really look at food deserts and look at where people lived, how far they lived from their PCP and could they access care and all of that. And for that, New York City allowed us to ring the closing bell of the New York Stock Exchange uh, as a thank you for the work that we had done for New York City. And so began from these very humble beginnings, us really starting to build out what we know today as population health, really looking at value and what these models can look like. We had just about finished that work when the organization decided to embark on a bundle, uh, a Model 3 bundle with CMMI. And I often talk about, you know, people talk about taking, dipping your toe into risk. We 
plunged full on into full upside and downside risk with a very difficult and complicated populations. We took heart disease and we took congestive heart failure and took on a 90-day bundle. And we did that. That was starting in 2014. We really believed that the work that we had done in prior to that, really looking at vulnerable communities and looking at care coordination of populations was really going to set us up pretty well for starting to look at value-based, you know, value-based care. So I was asked to build out a model and to look at the possibilities that, you know, not to look at the confines of volume and reimbursement, but really kind of uh, be challenged to be innovative and look at if, in fact, we were we built out a model and it truly had value, then there would be and we we did this in a value based model arrangement that there would be a return on investment. So we went deep into the evidence and really looked at, you know, a care model. And I worked with two other individuals. We were a team of three. So don't ever be scared that you have to have this big, large group of people to, you know, you could fit us in a walk-in closet, the three of us building out this model. And we embarked on the bundle and started, uh, you know, hired some nurse some nurses and uh, really started to build our evidence based and our data around what really causes people to go back into the hospital or seek out emergency room visits. And more often than not, it wasn't their medical condition. It was a host of other reasons that we saw. Thanks for sharing your your background and what led to the development of population health at VNSNY, uh, truly uh, a pioneering course of action and in, in looking into these various areas and social determinants and, and various areas within New York that has the most vulnerable populations and, and just the population population density within the locations there. So interesting to hear about the innovative ideas that you had looked at and how one thing led to another in developing the value-based care, the risk models, the bundles with CMMI. One thing led to another and truly led you to to where you are today in in it and drove the way through the change of of how providers approach care, how they look at value-based care. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about outside of Medicare. How does that apply to other payers as well? So uh, how about you spend a little bit of time talking about um, the philosophy of the risk models and how did you set them up, uh, the low rising high risk? what, What are some of the defining factors that you used in building those models? Thank you. Yeah. As we started developing the models and really looked into the in evidence and we I was in the midst of a collaboration with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And there was a lot of evidence around talking about how people uh, move in and out of risk cohorts. So, for example, uh, when you talk about 
a risk cohort like rising, there's a lot of science, uh, you know, a lot of literature that says that a rising cohort uh, within six months, if they are not care managed, will end up in high risk. So first and foremost, fundamentally, we never look at risk cohorts as being fixed. They're not fixed. People move in and out of cohorts. What we, we, we really wanted to look at developing a risk stratification model that incorporated all those things that were, like I said, beyond medical models. So, you know, does the person have a caregiver? How many medications are they on? What kind of uh, neighborhood, uh, what, you know, what neighborhoods do they live in? Do they have have access? Uh, do they have ha- access to healthy foods? And, you know, incorporating social determinants of health. Do they have protective things? Do they, you know, v- variables? So we took our comprehensive assessment and adopted an evidence-based risk stratification of low, rising, and high, which is consistent with the IHI model, as I've mentioned a few minutes ago. And it basically incorporates a lot of not just diagnoses or the fact that they were, you know, they were hot rehospitalized in the past. That's kind of the e- the easier stuff, but the stuff around what predisposes them in terms of functional ADLs, what predisposes them in terms of what's missing in their home environment or what does their home environment look like? And if you look at many of the risk stratification models, even, you know, for health plans, they're based on claims or pharmacy claims or like, you know, hospitalization claims. But there are, we were hoping that we were going to be able to create a risk stratification that was going to prevent the utilization of hospitalizations. Use historical data like that, but having the value of having a comprehensive assessment allows us to look at the home environment environment and take those variables and see how we can incorporate that into a risk stratification. So it's not just how many meds are on, they're on, what kind of meds, you know, medications are they on? Is there caregiver strain? Is the caregiver, because, you know, I worked in an emergency room many, many years ago when we used to talk about social admissions. Social admissions was code for, you know, the caregiver is overburdened and can't take care of them, or so you would have an emergency room drop-off, if you will, where the caregiver just said, I I can't do it anymore, So, or I need respite, or I need a break, or things like that. So we really wanted a risk stratification to be very inclusive of uh, all the comprehensive factors that could uh, affect somebody's risk in terms of seeking out emergency room or seeking out, you know, or ending up in the hospital, but also being able to be preventative in nature and protective in nature as well. 
Great. Thanks for sharing that information. And, and it shows that there's there's no cookie cutter approach to the risk stratifications and the models. And there's going to be so many drivers to it and, and how those patients get classified within it. Now, And we constantly build on our risk stratification. So we used, so we started off with a risk stratification cutoff points that was based on evidence, but then we took our bundle data. We took our health plan data in our current value-based arrangements, and we're constantly training or relearning our risk stratification to become more sensitive to those critical drivers of hospitalization and deterioration. That's so true. It's an ever-changing, ever-evolving model, you know, just based on the various changes in population, pay, changes in the information that the data is telling you as you're able to track and trend more different points of data and information, you're going to get different things to drive on that's going to help with some of your evidence-based findings and further developing the, these models for the better. So it's great to hear that there's always a constant development and perfection and studying of the data and continuing to execute on it. Now, I know as you take all this data, uh, you've gone out to a lot of different Medicare Advantage plans and had conversations with them. Uh, it's always important to understand, I know, how the plans work, what their focus points are, what do they pay attention to. It's not always easy to get a, a seat at the table. You can't go to them and say, I want to do a value-based model. I want to take on risk and I want to get involved in this. And how do you be a valued partner to them? So can you share with us like some of the general results that you've seen doing this and success you've seen um, for the plans that you've embarked on these models with? We have various products with um, with the plans. We have products that ha that include a home care component. We have products that are care transitions models that are for non-home care eligible populations as well that need what health plans have described care transition support, but are not necessarily home care eligible uh, individuals. We have a complex chronic condition programs that are longitudinal in nature, and we have an advanced illness management product that is um, sort of palliative care and end-of-life models with health plans. They're dependent upon the product. I would say, let's talk about the home care one, which we call our case rate model. We have commercial, we have Medicaid managed, and we have Medicare Advantage. Now, Medicare Advantage is probably the uh, most common arrangement that we have, um, although um, some of our programs in New York are Medicaid managed care payers only. It's interesting. So the pain points for Medicare Advantage may not be necessarily the pain points, the same pain points for Medicaid managed. A good example of that is um, behavioral health is really big with Medicaid managed, you know, and social determinants of health because of the nature of the population. We see more of, um, you know, the behavioral health complexities and things like that. Um, a lot of, um, you know, health equity stuff, uh, um, uh, the uh, social determinants around 
food insecurity, Medicaid, you know, things uh, around health literacy, things like that. Now, with Medicare Advantage, by virtue of the Medicare Advantage plans, what they are looking for, obviously, is readmission reduction um, on total cost of care, which is also true of Medicaid managed care. They are looking for um, a the value is in, you know, high cost settings like such as sniff settings, um, emergency room visits that um, may be more costly or may, may or may not been, been necessary, and also on um, readmission reduction. Obviously, those are the big hit. But they also are very interested in what I call supplemental data. So they get bonused on STARS measures, and um, they are obviously, it's very important to them on how they do with um, risk scores. They have what's called uh, HCCs, which is risk scores, which are informed by data, by clinical data, and you can help health plans with that, but also hitting their HEDIS measures. So we have um, we have gone in with, um, obviously, the, the, the top things around total cost of care and readmission reduction, but what they have found through the relationships that we have with them is that they can help them with some of their pain points, especially even this year where their membership was unable to um, maybe seek out uh, primary care. So we, you know, we were doing things like, you know, falls risk and pain, you know, obviously you have to use very specific evidence-based tools. It can't be just that they, they have to be approved. There's a lot of specifications on what qualifies as a HEDIS measure or what can be used with, for supplemental data. But if you really learn that speak and you really learn what's important to health plans in terms of um, that, what will really make a difference difference in total cost of care and helping them with uh, with their quality measures, you can really be a valued partner for them. You have to really have to learn what is important to um, to the plans themselves, meet them where they are. You know, it could be as simple as, you know, you know, there's a big difference between Oasis-based data and claims-based data. And, you know, I think the value-based states are getting there because they're now starting to work with claims-based, I think, ED and hospitalizations in days. But even with us, New York is not a VBP state, but way back in 2014, when I was starting to work with these health plans, we had to, uh, you know, we had to learn what is extraordinarily important to them, their risk scores, their, um, you know, uh, how to help them with their quality measures. What are their um, certain plans? Not all health plans struggle with the same HEDIS measures. So you might be working with a health plan that struggles with falls risks, a falls risk. You should know that. You should be able to like look at even, you know, health plan data, STARS data, HEDIS data, and be able to really school yourself in terms of understanding what's important to a health plan.
it doesn't hurt to say that you have a lot of experience in taking a risk. You have to be, I go all the way back to bundles. We took full risk. It does get their attention when you have experience where you say, I've taken full upside and downside risk. So you must, uh, I think it's really, really important to be ready to put skin in the game. Absolutely. I mean, you covered so many areas there for the audience to start thinking about different ways to approach it. What, how do you know what the MA plans are all about? So starting to have those introductory conversations with the, your uh, contracting reps and provider reps there to understand what's going on, what data can you start sharing to even probably get them interested into giving you a seat at the table. So if, if we simplify all of that, that um, information for the listeners, what would you say would be the top things that they should start tracking or doing if they were looking to get into this? Like just a couple things that if they were going to focus in on, what, what should it be? Well, I, I think they should obviously look at their readmission rates. And I don't think that, um, I, I think that they need to look at their readmission rates, you know, from a standpoint of not just 30 day readmissions, 30, 60, 90. Some of the relationships we have with health plans today, even in our home care value based arrangements, are 90 day, are 90 day episodes. So we're held accountable for, um, um, not just the amount of time that the, the care delivery part is in, but like what are, um, you know, what are the sustained effects of what you were able to provide over a prolonged period of time? I would look at ED. I would look at how you're doing in your OBQI measures in terms of very specific, what I call, uh, we measure um, what is the change in the delta. So how did we start and where did we end up? So a change in the delta might be change in depression score or a change in a pain score. It's not just about the collection of the data, but it's in the impact, metadherence, things like that. We use evidence-based tools to look at all those particular areas. And I would say, be very mindful of what you can do to impact social determinants, because it has a lot of attention of the health plans now in terms of social determinants. And we live in that space. So for example, there's data out there and literature out there that equates social isolation with, I think it's like smoking three packs of cigarettes a day. But you have to be very sophisticated around the health economics of that. It, so you can't just say, well, we can impact social isolation. You need to equate that to how successful you were, are in changing social isolation and all that that means, but then translate that into an economic value for them, a membership retention value for them. They care about member retention and member enrollment and member experience. You know, they have, um, you know, they have caps just like we do, you know, all those things, I think. And I think risk has got to be part of the conversation. You know, maybe you don't want to enter into risk the first year, but it's got to be on the um, 
trajectory. It's got to be on, you know, it's got to be on your, uh, you know, on people's barometers, both the health plan and your, that you're, you know, okay, we'll do this as a pilot, maybe the first year, but then we will be just to gain experience and look at our data. And then we, you know, and then we'll move into taking more, you know, more risk, you know, and that can be, uh, you can um, have a threshold. You could put a cap on those penalties. You know, there are a lot of various things you can do in terms of um, the arrangements. And in, in some of our programs, I don't take a fee until they're shared savings. Mm -hmm. I don't take, so I can, I can uh, do uh, a significant amount of care management work for a full year and then have a reconciliation, you know, uh, months after that year ends. And unless there's shared savings, I don't see my, uh, my care management fees. So, you know, that um, is, you know, that's putting our money where our mouth is, so to speak. You know, we believe. That's true. We believe that we bring that much value mm -hmm. to the table that we're willing to test it. Lots of food for thought here and advice for the audience, a lot of things for them to consider and think about as they think internally on how how do they want to jump into these risk-based and value-based models and what do they need to start getting ready uh, as they approach the different plans to have some of these conversations. Rose, I appreciate you taking the time to join me today. The insights shared, I know I'm always amazed with what you you've been able to do and accomplish and um, always just so enlightened by the value-based models and where our industry continues to move in the future towards these. So hope everyone enjoyed listening to this episode of the McBee Care Threads podcast. At McBee, we understand the challenges providers face across the healthcare landscape. For more than 45 years, we've been a part of the evolution of the healthcare industry. Our strategic advisory solutions span the home health, hospice, health system, and senior living care continuums, creating improved clinical, financial, and operational outcomes. Our expertise is guaranteed. Our solutions empower. Visit us today at mcbeeassociates.com. Thank you for listening to McBee Care Threads. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. For more information on the topics discussed today, visit our website at mcbeeassociates.com. Until next time.